You are listening to the Hospice Chaplaincy Show, a show where we talk about psychospiritual and psychosocial aspects of end-of-life care. And now, here is your host, Saul. Thank you very much for joining us on this episode of the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. I have a special guest today from Ireland, Dr. Anne Francis. Please welcome to the show. Thank you, Saul. It's wonderful to be here with you. You know, uh, your email, you know, when we published the 100th episode, your email really touched me deeply. I know we're in over 50 countries, but, you know, your email just put a face, you know, to someone in Ireland who is listening to the show. How did you find out about us? How did I? I think I was rummaging. I had applied for a role in a hospice for the first time in my life, and I was researching you know, what is this all about? And I must have found you on the internet. And so started to listen hungrily because uh, I wanted to get a perspective from practitioners. And uh, your podcast was perfect for that. And it's certainly something I've stayed with because it brings that, it brings experience, but it also gives you a sense of how very different and diverse personalities can engage with this work so richly and reflect on it so richly. Uh, so, yeah, and I always mean to, you know, on podcasts when it says, oh, if you like the show, you know, send a review. And I f- I'm afraid I'm not very good at that. I don't know how to do it. But when I heard that you were having your 100th episode, I thought, Anne, sit down and thank this man uh, for this lovely work, because it has been a, a wonderful part of my um, time as a hospice pastoral care member. Thank you so much for those kind words. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Manchester, and I know you're a soccer fan, Saul, so yes. yeah, very much, um, <laughs> you know, soccer is your tribe and your religion if you grow up in Manchester. And my father was from Manchester originally, and my mother was Irish. She had come to the north of England to study to be a teacher, and they met in uh, her first school. And uh, so we grew up in um, a home which was uh, very Catholic. It was a home full of faith. They were teachers. They were very driven to help other people and to kind of serve community. And so we had an urban upbringing. But then in the summers, we went to her home place, which is by the sea in the south of Ireland and had wonderful times with her family. So we had his family when we were there and her family when we came to Ireland. So what was your dream as a child? My dream as a child, it's hard to it's hard to articulate that. I wasn't one of those children that had a very clear vision. You know, I didn't want to be, um, you know, a ballerina or an astronaut or anything like that. Mm. I do think after a certain point, it was more of an assumption than a dream that I would be involved in church. I do remember somebody, maybe I was eight or nine, when somebody told me that girls couldn't be priests. And I was very surprised by that. And I think the surprise was attached to the assumption that I would sort of be that uh, without having articulated it. Uh, So I suppose that was there in the background, Uh, but hard to know really. Perhaps I was living in the present. I didn't have a strong sense of future. That is incredible. Um, How did your calling to ministry begin? I think when I was a teenager, um, I became involved in prayer groups and uh, 
there was a particular prayer group in Manchester, the Manchester Youth Prayer Group. And so it was people of my own age who were growing in faith. And it was where I first became exposed to the scriptures, you know, that sometimes in the Catholic tradition, certainly at that time, uh, there wasn't a lot of emphasis on the Bible. And uh, that was a very uh, uplifting and life-affirming time for me. And I think it put me in touch with my passion, which was around faith, but also around um, reaching out to other people and community and relationships. And uh, when I was uh, approaching my A-levels, which in England is the exam you do before you go to university, um, I wanted to do religious studies, which was the study of John's gospel. And uh, I remember the sisters at school saying, but you're a bright girl. Why would a woman, why would a girl want to study scripture when you'd be better to take a language? It'll take you further. So um, I did take a language. I wasn't very successful at it. And then I went to university to study English, but had a chance to take a theology subsidiary subject. And um, and that that's where I found my tribe and my passion and was able to convince the professor that I, I should, even without this A-level, move on to the theology uh, main programme. And he said, if I, if I was able to pick up the Greek over Christmas, um, I'd be able to do it. So I spent a Christmas holiday madly studying Greek, uh, all long forgotten, and, uh, and joined the main subject then and really never looked back. And it was theology, but how does a woman in the Catholic tradition move into ministry, um, you know, without the obvious trajectory of seminary and, and all that? Mm-hmm. And I was lucky to find a programme that had just opened to women, which was in Dublin, and uh, it was the pastoral leadership uh, postgraduate diploma. And I was accepted onto that. And that's where I got my kind of practical training, CPE, parish placements um, and all of that. So I was very fortunate because that was 1986 and there wasn't so much of it around at that time. So what was your role within the parish? Um, When I was on placement? Yes. so it was a bit of a nuisance, really. I, um, <laughs> the, I I was taken in. There was a wonderful religious sister who was living in the flats in inner city Dublin. Her ministry was one of presence. And a lot, lot of other people followed that tradition later, but she was one of the first. And so I was put with her, really. And I just, um, she was doing literacy uh, with some of the people in the flats she was, who'd had a poor education. She was doing cooking with them. She lived with them and lived alongside them. And also then um, the parish was uh, run by Capuchin Friars and they needed somebody for the choir. And I played the guitar. So I got to know a lot of the children from the flats who wanted to be in the choir. And uh, so we just had a great time together, really. Wow. And then um, after that, after some time, you transitioned to hospice chaplaincy work. Yes, um, and I've heard you say often, Saul, that there's usually something in our history that connects us to this work, um, and it took me a long time. <laughs> I, I'm 57 and had been in ministry for 35 years before I even considered healthcare. Um, but my own mother had had cancer when I was a small child and survived it, and then my father um, got cancer when I was a teenager. And by the time I was in the middle of my studies, uh, my theology studies, he had he was approaching the end of his life. And I gave up college for a short time, a few weeks and looked after him um, uh, until he died. 
And I think possibly that must have been there in the background, that sort of comfort and, you know, awareness of the normality of somebody dying. It was part of my normal age 19, trying to be of help at home. Um, and so I was happily working in um, formation, spirituality, uh, lots of parishes and dioceses. I worked in the Diocese of Salford. And then when we came to Ireland in 1996, um, I was working in the diocese in Cork and uh, working in universities, teaching theology. So never really thought of hospice or hospital or healthcare work. Um, and then I heard that the local hospice had advertised for somebody for their pastoral care team. And it was one of those moments where it just felt imperative that I move into this um, mm. and uh, was, was, was unsure whether they'd even be interested in somebody who hadn't been in that work, was unsure why I was doing it really, but you know that feeling when you just feel <laughs> this is it and that's, yeah. that's what happened, that's what happened. So that was only in May last year, post-pandemic, yeah. 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 How is that ministry going now for you? Um, I absolutely love it. So it is... Um, it's so much uh, a ministry of presence. And, mm. you know, perhaps I was ready in this moment in my life to be, to, to bring what I am. Mm. You know, I'm really, I, I'm a great advocate of continuing to learn and continuing to grow. But there was something about moving into this role that said, well, actually, what I've got here is me. Yeah. And, um, you know, show up and just come <laughs> alongside people. And that's what I love about it. You know, there's a, there was a lot of learning. It was very different to what I had done before. Yeah. But the absolute joy of meeting people, um, you know, such diverse people in such, you know, a, a setting where people are opened up in different ways, you know. Yeah. And in our setting, which may be a little different, we are a residential hospice. Our, our main work is in the building. And there's also then the, the nurses and doctors look after patients in the community, but we don't have the staff to go out. We will we'll talk to people on the phone in the community, but we don't mostly visit homes yet. Mm. I think it's a direction we'll take. And so much of what we do takes place on the wards. Um, and so we we're going into people's rooms and they're finding themselves in this place and uh, confronted with all the things you're confronted with when you're not well. Um, so it, um, I just find it a joyful place to work. And, you know, how, how can people be so courageous? And how can people be so real? Um, and allow you into that very private and sometimes extreme moment that they're having um, with such generosity and grace, really. Um, so it's very humbling uh, and a huge privilege. And it's a huge privilege, too, to work with other people in other disciplines, in the multidisciplinary team, you know, that I think mm -hmm. have learned how to do pastoral care and spiritual care from how a physio is a physio, how she's walking down the, the corridor with somebody so gently and so tenderly and so slowly, and how a doctor speaking about a patient or how a nurse is standing with a family who, who are getting bad news. I think when you're part of a team like that, mm. they're doing their role, but it's teaching you how to occupy your role as well. Yeah. 
You said that uh, this ministry required something different, a little bit different from your other context of ministry. Uh, what do you think was that that required more out of you that the others did not? I think what was different? I suppose there are things that are the same and things that are different. Yeah. Um, certainly, if you're in an education role or you're in a facilitator role, there is an element of preparation, you know, that um, I was a bit of an arch preparer. So, you know, if yeah. if I was coming to give a class or I was coming to facilitate a group, there'd be a lot of preparation done because it made me feel uh, safe, it made me feel secure. Even if I departed from it, I thought it's there behind you. Yeah. And um, in this role, uh yeah, you, you're bringing yourself. You can't really prepare for what somebody's going to offer you in that moment. There's also no homework, which is very nice. You know, you go home <laughs> in the evening, you're not preparing for the next day. Yeah. But um, so that was certainly a difference. And sometimes there's also an element of performance in those roles, you know, whereas there's something quite private and intimate about this work, yeah. which feels liberating to me, you know, that... Mm that you're you're gauging you're watching another person and seeing what where are you taking me yeah. you know this this river of your story and your experience you know can we go in it together are you going to allow me to step in at the side or are we going right down deep today yeah. um and that is uh you know how compelling it's so compelling to be present to a person in that way and especially if the invitation is there to um, to join them in, in what they're in. Yeah, I connect deeply with what you just said. I think that's how my um, calling to hospice began. I was a, I was a pastor in a local church, mm. and then I was required to do my uh, clinical uh, pastoral education. And I remember being in the context of hospice. I was really uh, intrigued by how real it was, you know, uh, talk about the performance aspect of church here in America. Sunday morning, people come, you know, um, with different kind of masks, you know, at least the church I was pastoring then, and mm -hmm. everyone is showing strength and all this. But in hospice, um, it felt real. There's nothing to hide. Uh, a loved one is in the home or in the facility dying. Mm -hmm. So I connected with that realness, that level of authenticity. Mm -hmm. And I realized this is where I want to be, where there's this deep authenticity, where their yes. wounds can touch my wounds and mm -hmm. we connect and in the process minister to each other. Mm -hmm. And, and mm -hmm. I love that. Yes. But yeah. it is, as you found out, it can also be emotionally tasking. For me, the first year, I think the first six months was tough. I almost quit <laughs> because the emotions were too much. I found yeah. myself, I was young. I found myself taking these burdens with me at home after work. Yeah. How have you learned, you know, to prepare for that? How have mm. you dealt with your first year? Um, I think certainly in other ministry roles, you know, having met people in difficulties or dealt with difficult situations it becomes a habit um, I think the habit of self-care is something that I've always developed you know I, I, I'm in supervision we have supervision provided for us by the hospice 
and uh, I have my own supervision practice as well. So those disciplines of having to step back, um, you know, and also we're, I'm a member of a team. And so, um, you know, if I leave on a Friday afternoon, there's two other members of the team will be there on a Saturday. And the people I've, you know, met today and feel very connected to and uh, hope the best for will be met by those people tomorrow. And that's the discipline too, is letting go and saying they're the right person over the weekend. Um, and so, you know, we're all we're all just trying to occupy our, our own selves, really, aren't we? Um, and there's a limit to that, you know, to realise that you, you're not everything to these people. Yeah. Um, and, you know, realising, I think realising when I had children that these are the people that need me mm. and other people might need me for a short time. Yeah. And my own children are adults now and possibly don't feel they need me either. But, you know, when you have your children, you realize these are the people who need me. And that actually sometimes it's a little bit of ego or a little bit of um, over caring that makes you go back. You know, that it's I find it quite easy to let go. And I have my own practice. I go for a swim. I, I As I get older, silence is very important to me. So, yeah. um, you know, just to find a, a silent space, making sure there's space in the week for some quiet. Um, you know, those are the, the normal things that I do just to make sure that um, there's a distinction between me and the work. Hmm. I'm glad that you have very good self-care practices. With that, we'll take a little break. Let me reintroduce you. My guest is Dr. Anne Francis, beyond her work as hospice chaplain. She also, she also just wrote a book. Uh, the title of the book is called Women in Ministry in Ireland. We'll be right back. Continuing to be a leader in the field of spiritual care at the end of life, Hospice Chaplaincy provides high-quality professional development webinars that will improve your practice of spiritual care at the end of life. Check out our latest webinars at www.hospicechaplaincy.com. I'm Sole Bem and we continue our conversation with Dr. Anne Francis. Uh, could you tell us what is, what is your theology of ministry? Oh, thanks for that question, Saul. Um, I think I mentioned earlier the idea of presence. Mm. And um, I think that what we can do for each other is walk alongside or be alongside another person. And to do that, occupying your own body and your own story, I think is an anointed thing. And I think that might be true. We, we kind of talk about it in terms of ministry, but it's also true if you're a nurse or if you're a physio or if you're a pharmacist, you know, that you're bringing that authenticity of yourself to the thing. Mm. Um, and, um, you know, there's a thing, I think uh, it was Ram Das said, we're all just walking each other home. And that might be true throughout life, but especially in the hospice setting, you know, that sense in which we can do that kindly. Um, and I think deep at the heart of my theology of ministry is um, relationship. Mm. You know, that in the Christian faith, we we have a Trinitarian God. We don't always behave as if community and love is at the centre of what we're doing. But um, that whole uh, dynamic of love yeah. in the Trinity, you know, those are the communities that we can be if we can um if we can just be aware of what we're doing and choosing relationship i think is a big part of it for me yeah 
Let's talk about your book, uh, your book a little bit here. Uh, what was the motivation of writing your book called Women in Ministry in Ireland? Mm, thanks. Well, I suppose being a, you know, from being a young girl um, studying theology to going into ministry in a church, in the Catholic church, where there wasn't a pathway for ministry. You could be, if you're a man, you could be a priest. If you're a woman, you could be a religious sister. And for some reason, that never really came to me. It, was, it wasn't my calling. No. You know, I'd, I wanted to have a family and um, it never really occurred to me. The sisters at school must have wondered when I was going to knock on their door, but it never happened. And so it was very much my story of step by step following my own calling. Um, and then, of course, you're talking to other women, you know, in the Catholic tradition and other Christian traditions who are facing their own challenges, you know, that whatever else they're doing in ministry, they also have to face this element of being a woman within the theology and tradition of their church. Mm. Um, and eventually I was teaching, I was a director of pastoral studies in a college in Cambridge in England. And this college was a Catholic college, but it was part of a federation of colleges from other Christian denominations and the students all did their work together. And People, women who were going to colleges from churches which were welcoming of their vocation to priesthood or anything else they wanted to do, um, were still coming and saying, you know, being a woman is hard in this tradition. And that made me think twice. I kind of thought, well, there are, you know, where, where certain churches restricted women's ministries, that was where the problem was. But women who were going into ministries from much more open and accepting churches were also saying, this is harder than I thought. There's kind of something in the air. And I think, you know, in the Christian tradition, certainly where, um, you know, reasons are given why women shouldn't minister, you know, that if you want to be a doctor or a lawyer as a woman, I think there are still challenges, but people want to say, no, it's an equal profession. Whereas within Christianity, where there are theologies that said, no, God doesn't want you to do this. It means it's going to be an uphill battle and people are going to tell you, um, you know, you mustn't answer your call. You must behave in a certain way. For example, you must be silent or you must, you know, treat your husband as your boss or whatever. So this that whole story began to emerge more and more so that when I had some time to do some research, it became compelling for me to share the stories of women. And I decided stories was the best way to do it because we've heard the arguments till we're blue in the face and, you know, people have their own entrenched positions. But I thought, let's find out what it's actually like uh, to be a woman ministering. And so I just put out a call to women um, in Ireland. I, I, we've, had, we've got a very sectarian past in Ireland. I didn't want to contribute to it. So I said, you know, if, if ministry is your main call, your main life, come back to me and talk to me. And that's how it came about. They, they did come back to me and talk to me. Yeah. <laughs> so how many? How many came to talk to you? Well, I had, I had questionnaires first, and um, yeah. I think there were about 18 or 20 questionnaires came back. And on, there yeah. was an option on the questionnaire, would you like to have an interview? And so... Um, women from the four corners of Ireland um, were interviewed then from these. And, you know, considering that most of them didn't know me, were so open and so generous in what they shared yeah. um, and were glad to tell their story, I think, 
Um, and it might might have been very focused on how their call began. The book is called called because uh, I didn't ask women. I never said to women, you know, did you receive a call? But every single person talked about that sense of call, it, there being a beginning um, in a way, really, that I failed to talk. Um, and so I was quite surprised. But women talked about a call that was almost a physical experience. Other women talked about that hear something come out of their own mouth and say, who said that? I wasn't going to say that. People who resisted their call, people who embraced their call, people who found themselves in a church and had an overwhelming sense of home. It was the most fascinating thing, just that part of it. Uh, so that gave the book its title. And um, and then obviously they talked, they talked mostly about the joys. I didn't speak to anybody who had any regrets, whatever, even when they were telling me about some quite difficult challenges that they had faced. What kind of challenges? What kind of challenges did they face? I think I think an umbrella term for the challenges would be a sense of being unwelcome. You know, that that they talked a lot about a male model of ministry. And we kind of really tried to unpack that. I, I did the initial interviews and then we had a gathering of practitioners to see what do we all make of this? I didn't want it just to be me. And it was really that there was an idea in people's head about what a minister should be. Now, this could be an ordained minister or it could be um, somebody working in other areas. And it was this sense that what you've got really doesn't make the grade because the grade is over here and it's definitely male. Hmm. Uh, but when you dig into that, you know, the, the discussion was that really men don't really much benefit from that model either, because it actually means you're a certain kind of male in a certain kind of um, ministry. Hmm. Uh, so it's a, it's a lack of diversity. But it was very, very hurtful to women to feel as if they constantly had to justify their presence. Hmm. So in a theological college, um, you know, you're doing your study, it's hard enough, you've got to do your essays and your placements. And the men were getting on with that and the women were doing that and justifying their presence and having to explain why they were there and feeling that when they went to preach on a Sunday, certain people might walk out of the church or, you know, or whatever. Um, sisters were interested. There's a lot of religious sisters in Ireland traditionally, and that demography is quite um, elderly now. There hasn't been a lot of young women going into religious congregations. Yeah. But they noticed that when they were working in a hospital or school founded by their order, they had no problems at all. But when they then went into parish, which was the more male domain, mm. uh, you know, they ran into awful difficulties. Um, so women from the Presbyterian and Catholic traditions and other traditions that limit um, women's involvement or, or are talking about limiting women's involvement found the most challenges. But again, even women who are from other churches did come across, you know, sometimes sticky situations or attitudes that was based on the fact that they were women. And even those that said they never had any problems followed it up straight away by saying how lucky they were. So that tells you something too, you know, but if you don't have a problem with sexism or misogyny or, you know, harassment, then you're lucky. Mm. I don't think men feel like that. No. Well, that would take a little break and we'll be right back. If someone you know is suffering from mental health issues and could use some support, please call the National Alliance for Mental Illness Helpline. 
It is a free nationwide peer support service, providing information, resource referrals, and support to people living with a mental health condition. To contact the NAMI helpline, please call 1-800-950-NAMI. That's 1-800-950-6264, Monday through Friday, or send an email to info at nami.org. I'm Sole Bem, and we continue our conversation with Dr. Anne Francis. Uh, what were your findings of, of your research? Um, the findings were that women would follow their call despite challenges. You know, that they would just do it. And, you know, I had, I'm had i not an historian, but to dip into the history of women, you know, these very um, strong Methodist women who were told not to preach and so went and asked Wesley himself and Wesley said, no, you must preach. That through history, you know, it wasn't, it, the story doesn't begin with the women I met, that women who are called will always, you know, f- find find a voice, find a way, so many of those stories have been lost. Um, and, uh, you know, certainly the founders of religious congregations for women, certainly, you know, the early preachers, the people who campaigned for ordination and so on, that women will persist as if they have no choice. You know, I think I think people of many different backgrounds, men and women, feel that if they have a call, they must follow it. Mm. And, you know, this is evident. Um, and that people can change you know that people who found a lot of resistance to begin with once the relationships developed back to my earlier point once they met the woman minister who was coming to their parish once they met the parish sister once they heard a woman preach they realized that perhaps they had some changing to do and that's another lovely part of the story is that people received them because of who they were it wasn't just that there was a woman arriving when they met that woman and had that experience developed a relationship, a lot of those entrenched positions kind of melted away. Mm. Um, though, I mean, there were some sad findings as well. You know, women who say, for example, in the Catholic Church in Ireland, women occupying very flimsy contracts, you know, not being paid enough, not um, having holidays, losing their jobs because they're on temporary arrangements. Um people who had a lot of power, you know, sort of um, pushing women out of situations, women who were extremely well qualified being overseen by people who weren't uh, on the grounds of the fact that they were ordained or they were male. Mm. So that sadness was there, but the finding really was this strong, good-humoured, focused group of women who just got on with it and who wanted just to get on with it. Really, they were resistant to talking about the challenges because they wanted to say, no, this is who I am. Mm. Hmm. So uh, is there more progress now, you know, in... Is there more progress, especially in... in, Before the break, you spoke about uh, the women feeling unwelcome. And I assume that that might come from the male clergy, but also some of the parishioners would feel like that. Is there some kind of a mental shift as people see the calling? Because calling is visible. You can see that this Mm -hmm. person is called regardless of their gender. You can see Mm -hmm. the calling of God upon them. Has there Mm -hmm. been some change in that area? 
I think I think it's as people experience them. So whether it's in parish or whether it's in a hospital or a hospice, you know yeah. that there are more female um, members of pastoral care teams, people in spiritual care. And, you know, Ireland has been certainly a very Christian country, but also a very Catholic country and the Republican especially. So meeting somebody who is um, from the pastoral care team who's a woman, you know, people are kind of wondering, what's this now? She's obviously not the priest. What is she going to come up with? Um, so it is, it's, people are generous and curious. And I think mm. that's where the change is. The position in the churches, you know, I think it's very much... Um, kind of theologically entrenched and I don't know whether those things will change until people's experience and relationships change. Yeah. Have you found that some hospice patients have rejected your visit because you are a female minister? Uh, no, but I have been questioned, you know, that I work with, there are four men on my team. Yeah. Um, and uh, so, yeah, people, people are kind of wonder, first of all, they wonder if I'm a Catholic because I've got an English accent and uh, they wonder if I'm a lady vicar. And uh, sometimes, it, but it's more curiosity, really. And the assumption in Ireland can be that if there's anything, obviously, we provide all kinds of spiritual care. We do provide religious care, but not everybody wants it. But where somebody would like a prayer or where somebody would like some prayers after a death with a family, people can just be look a little bit surprised when I come in. Uh, but they're perfectly lovely about it. You know, the, their expectation is that a priest will come in and they can be surprised when it's not the priest member of the team that comes in. Uh, but I, I don't think I've experienced rejection. I don't think so. Yeah. So you come into this uh, hospice ministry with such a rich background, some of it rejection because you're a female priest, uh, a minister. Uh, how are you using all this background uh, as a tool as for your ministry? Uh, I think we all um, use what we've got. Um, there's, a, there's a saying that I think began with um, a priest in the Limerick Diocese called Michal Liston, that we're all beggars, uh, telling each other where we found bread. Yeah. And so where I found bread is different to where you did or to the patients or, you know, members of the medical team or the cleaning staff or, and just um, walking in your own skin, really. Um, And you do bring um, some of your own sorrow, you know, that Mm. because you've experienced some sorrow yourself, it, it makes you more able to sit still in the presence of somebody else's sorrow. And to, you know, walk into that water with them a bit. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, and I do think, you know, having a few years behind me has yeah. helped me with that. I, I'm not seeking to, um, to be anything other than present. Yeah. So, um, so you bring your own experiences and you're just putting them at the service of other people, really. And I think you bring a very rich experience that is filled with empathy, compassion, because you've gone through struggle. You understand that the dying are going through struggle. As a female minister, you've gone through rejection. The mm-hmm. dying are relegated in our society, either to facilities away mm-hmm. from you know the general public. So you come with this level of um, authenticity that, that really ministers from... Uh, empathy, compassion, resilience. You know, you have uh, an amazing level of resilience 
to be doing this, this whole, yeah <laughs> yeah thankful but this whole thing i don't know if you find this but there's a little expectation that people have to be cheerful and positive you know and kind of put their brave face on and you know that if they think positively enough they won't have cancer anymore or that you know they won't possibly die and i don't know where it came from you know oh, really? so it, i think it helps me to encourage other people to be members of the human race because i sure know that i'm a member of the human race yeah. you know that um there are ups and downs and there are difficulties and we're not always proud of ourselves and we're not always shiny and yeah. you know sometimes you know so often patients say to me i, I have to be positive and uh, I kind of say, well, you don't have to be positive today. Have yeah. a duvet day. Don't be positive. Yeah. Be grumpy. You yeah. know, be, be let real. those feelings out. Be real. Yeah. Let those tears come. Yeah. And I think that if you've walked a bit of that road yourself, you don't mind a bit if other people, um, you know, show show you their sorrow or their shadow or tell you that thing that they're regretting, mm. you know, because if you've heard a bit and seen a bit yourself, and, yeah. uh, you know, if people want to be positive, hooray for you. If you just are having a day when positive seems like a stretch too far, then let it go, for goodness sake. Let it yeah. go, yeah. Mm. I think uh, there's nothing wrong with being positive, but <laughs> you have to be real. It has to be rooted mm. in realness. And if you're not feeling it, there's no reason to fake it. That's uh, that's, no, no, say that again. If you're not feeling it, there's no reason to fake it. That's what I'm going to take in on Monday mornings. <laughs> if you're not feeling it, there's no reason to fake it. That is going to be my slogan. <laughs> <laughs> what are your final thoughts? Um, I think I think my final thoughts is the endless wonder of the human person in front of you. You know, the Hindus have a, a saying, the teacher nearest to you kind of saying that we look for teaching to people who are distant or we think are great but actually if we look to the person nearest to us that's the person who's going to teach us um and we're all just learning to live with ourselves um taking the next step our stories our bodies our brave beautiful amazing bodies who carry us through um, our gifts, the courage or the fear that we didn't expect, the day that takes us by surprise. Um, and maybe when we near the end of our lives, something opens up that hasn't been available to us before. And, uh, you know, what an extraordinary privilege to meet people there um, and hope that you can be part of their story in a positive way. Yeah. Talking about teaching, I think all of us, uh, listening to this podcast, you've taught us a lot today. I really, I'm oh, really honored that you've decided to join us. So thank you very much for joining oh, us on this episode. Thank you. My pleasure and privilege. That was Dr. Anne Francis. Her book is called Women in Ministry in Ireland. Thank you very much for listening. This show was brought to you by Hospice Chaplaincy, promoting excellence in spiritual care at the end of life. This episode was recorded at Audio Hive Podcasting in Julia, Illinois. You can find our podcast everywhere podcasts are available. If you enjoy listening to the show, please don't forget to give us your feedback by writing a review on iTunes. For more information, please visit www.hospicechaplaincy.com.